Welcome to the Conversion Tracking Playbook, where we share how to overcome tracking challenges that e-commerce brands face today and real-world examples of transforming data into insights. Welcome back to another episode of the Conversion Tracking Playbook. I'm your co-host and guest now that I think John is that you are officially the number two guest on here, here to drop some knowledge and share everything that's going on. John, welcome back. Thanks, Brad. And we have hundreds of requests, uh, thousands of people asking you to come back on. So uh, you might be a permanent fixture here. <laughs> yeah, I've heard a lot of fans, a lot of fans I've heard. <laughs> All right. Well, we were just chatting before we, we were clicking record. So let's just jump right into it. We've got a ton that we're going through today. We're going to touch on Google ads and GA4 reporting. We're going to talk about Google Tag Manager and their Shopify web pixel, GA4, and a, a couple different scenarios. One, the LLVR integration versus the Google channel integration. We're going to talk about uh, new GA4 reports that allows you to QA between Universal Analytics and GA4, Microsoft Clarity AI, potentially some more Shopify checkout updates. So we've I don't know if we'll get through everything, but we got a lot to cover. So, we got a lot. Yeah. All right. So I think that was it the Microsoft Clarity AI. Is that what you were just about to talk about before I hit record? Yeah. So I saw some interesting stuff this week from Clarity. So Clarity is a tool. We're partnered with them. It's basically like a free screen recording tool and and then some. It's a really, really good tool. And Ravi, the guy there who's in charge of it, is like super into innovating. And I guess they've added what's essentially like an analytics piece to this tool. And the analytics piece is completely AI driven. So right now it's browser side and you can't do it server side. And we've been talking to him about maybe doing a connection server side to it. But basically, it's like this system where they're trying to democratize analytics, right? Give everyone access to this data so you don't have to be an analyst to get your questions answered. So, yeah, I just I thought it was pretty interesting that they were diving into this world because I think Microsoft has, and I can't remember which AI technology they're building. It's it's not OpenAI, right? It's a, it's a different AI technology than OpenAI. It's not like the chat GPT stuff, I don't think. Yeah, I don't know what percentage, but majority investor, at least a large stake. I'm pretty, by the way, no research in any of this. So if anybody listening call BS, but I'm pretty sure how this all started was uh, OpenAI being hosted on Azure. Uh, Azure. Uh, okay. Okay. So maybe it is like, maybe it is the chat GPT technology they're, they're using b- behind the scenes. Yeah. I, I'll do a quick Google. Actually, I'll do a quick Google. Well, can, what are the use cases? So yeah, what is, what is bringing AI into clarity? What does that mean for, for the end user? The idea is answering questions and this tool isn't released yet. So we're just kind of talking in hypotheticals here because I've just seen Ravi sent me the, the tool like overview, but I haven't had my hands on it. I think the idea is that you get like a communication interface with it so you can ask it questions like what channels are driving the most. I believe that's part of this, but it's access to all things. So I think you're able to ask it about sessions and uh, source mediums and all that kind of good stuff. So it sounds kind of like a Google Analytics that has like an interface, like a a chat GPT-ish kind of interface to it. Yeah. Yeah. The question that I always come back to, and I we tried to solve this years ago with Elevar, didn't didn't quite happen. But 
what combination of event actions on my site will lead to the highest probability of conversion. So is it someone comes in, they have to come through this landing page, they have to watch this video, they have to click this button or read this thing or be exposed to this animation. What does that flow look like? I, I know that answer will will come sometime and maybe, maybe it'll be Microsoft Clarity. But uh, it sounds like that could be potentially part of this is because they can just process so many, just the amount of, I don't know how many, how much data they're processing, but the, the ability to process and stitch together and, and do that type of really, really deep data analysis is something that a human can't do. Yeah, it's like that magical funnel, the search for the magical funnel, right? The magical path. Anyways, I thought that was pretty cool. We'll try and work with them server side, hopefully sometime soon. Nice. Yeah, yeah Microsoft and uh, backed OpenAI with $1 billion. Oh, so yeah, okay. they, yeah. They're probably involved, yeah. Yeah. All right, so let's move to Shopify and Google Tag Manager and the Google Tag Manager Pixel in the context of the Web Pixel. Before we dive into that nuance, maybe just do a reminder, just a general overview on what is the Web Pixel from a or for a merchant or from a merchant perspective? What does it do? How does it help them? How, what's different about it, et cetera? Yeah, so at the highest level, it does a piece of what we do. We do quite a bit more than just surface events, but the Shopify web pixel is basically a tool to surface events on the Shopify stores. So let's say somebody adds something to their cart. <clears throat> Instead of trying to detect that by looking at a form submit or looking at an Ajax request to add something to the cart, they just surface the event for you. They give you an interface where you can plug in code and you can listen for that event and then you can react to that event. So that's the main thrust of the tool. And it's really an awesome tool. It's somewhat limited. It doesn't surface the same number of events as we do. And it is a bit of the Wild West because, I mean, you are writing your own code in there and you have to connect to certain pieces of information to populate your tags. And there's a lot of complexity there, but at the heart of it, it basically publishes events and lets you listen to those events. And I think like what came up this week, and we don't know when this article was published on Shopify, I, I think it was relatively recently, but I don't know for sure. When sh the Shopify web pixel first came out, I think my personal impression was they didn't really want GTM to be used in this environment anymore for privacy reasons or or maybe for other reasons. I, I don't know exactly. Malicious. Yeah protecting the merchants from attack or preventing users from attack. The reason for that is once Google Tag Manager is on a site, you can load any custom JS and run any... Basically, it's a door into the checkout or other areas that we've seen in the past with Magento obviously having the history of major checkout hacks and people scraping credit card information, things of that nature. So that's what we mean around Google Tag Manager potentially being that door that opens up that possibility to malicious scripts that might be doing that. And we were thinking Shopify was trying to shut that down in the new checkout. Yeah, exactly. And thanks for adding that point. That's really helpful because that kind of explains why they built the web pixel because you get these contexts outside the context of where the user is doing their thing that's sort of safe. So there's these multiple contexts. One context is where the user is and they're browsing the site or they're in checkout and they're adding their credit card information. And then in a totally different context that's kind of protected, it's in an iframe, you can do your tracking work, but you can never really access the behavior of the user. You can't look at what's in the visa, in the credit card number field. But potentially with GTM, the old way in checkout.liquid, you could gain access to some of these fields. 
So anyways, back to this whole thing of, you know, now GTM is available in the web pixel. It was our understanding that that wasn't going to be the case. And we kind of built away from that. And I don't think that was a mistake. The way we've done it, we've used web hooks instead of the web pixel. And because web hooks are server side, there's better accuracy. It's more like our purchase events and we're all about accuracy. So our architecture is great, and I still think it was the right choice. But the interesting thing is, now you can load the GTM container in the context of the web pixel and kind of use it to surface events and push events into GTM. So it's a bit of a change, a bit of an unexpected change. And we actually use the web pixel for our own attribution system, so we love it. But we haven't been using this it this way. I don't think we're going to go down that road, but it's just kind of an interesting thing to note that you yep. can now load the GTM web container in the context of the web pixel and sort of use those events yep. in the GTM container if you want. You have to write some code, but you can do it. Yeah. And what would be some downsides to that? Actually, before we get to that, the upside to this would be Previously, even if you have listened to this podcast, previous episodes, or, or read anything that we've sent out, when we we have been helping our customers migrate to the new checkout extensibility, it's hey, if you want to maintain your checkout events, begin uh, begin initiate checkout, add shipping info, add payment info. You'll need to use one of our destinations that has webhooks available. Otherwise you would have to use the the pixel manager if you wanted to maintain those events because there's no checkout that liquid. You can't inject and use data layer events like our existing integration works with checkout.liquid. So the one benefit could be it's like, okay, well, you can maintain your client-side tracking through the checkout on new checkout extensibility without having to move everything to webhook or some other mechanism. Um, So that would be the upside. What are some of the potential gotchas or, or downsides to using Google Tag Manager in the context of the web pixel and the sandboxed iframe. Yeah, so it goes back to this idea of the multiple contexts, right? And I don't want to speak too specifically about this because I loaded this up yesterday. I played around with it because I was interested and I didn't run into as many problems as I thought I would. But one of the issues is local storage and cookies are different in the two different contexts. Now, most of the cookies look like they do come over from the regular web browser context, so we're okay. And the reason this is important is because, let's say, we send a conversion event to Google Ads for a begin checkout, at the time of begin checkout. To do that properly, we need the GCL ID that came in with the click, and that GCL ID is stored in a cookie. So if we don't have that in the cookie, if we don't have that GCL ID in the appropriate cookie and we fire the event in GTM, Google Ads will receive the event, but they won't be able to connect the event to the actual ad click. So basically, there's this issue of, do I have the appropriate information to send along with these tags? And a lot of it is not explicit. It's kind of under the hood stuff that happens behind the scenes. So you don't really know unless you go through by hand and make sure all this data is there. Another issue for us is we store a lot of this in local storage. And this is really getting into the weeds. But again, it's an issue of context. Do I have everything I need that I think I would have in the regular context? You have to check. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the consequences, basically, if you're sending events to Facebook without a FBCL ID, 
maybe it starts affecting your scores, your match rates and stuff like that. So it's, yeah, on a per tag basis, it could be a little nebulous. Yeah. Do you have a, just a general recommendation? Is it give it a try, test each channel individually? Yeah, I think so. I think that's the only thing you can really do. Like if you don't want to upgrade to getting server-side events from Elevar, then it's probably worth it to try and follow Shopify's instructions. And you can get these really easily. If you yep. Google, I think I looked for like Shopify GTM web, web pixel. Yep. You could go for it, give it a shot. It's not going to work out of the box. Like you'll be able to push the event into um, GTM and the tags will fire, but you're going to have to be careful that like that's not the end of the story. You're going to have to make sure that the events have the appropriate data and then you're going to have to make sure that the tags have the appropriate data. So I don't see the harm in trying to send these events and seeing what happens, but just beware. Yeah. It might not work yeah. really well out of the box. But props to Shopify, yeah. you know, for making these changes. Yeah. I think it's pretty cool how much they've listened yeah. over the period they've been working on this. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it was I think it was on one of our initial wish lists when we were doing the dev beta testing last year on the new web pixels. Can we get GTM to to load and, and check out? Because there's so many channels that don't support server side. They don't have a conversion API. We can't send them data from a webhook to their API. They they only rely on client side and they just it's that it's that fuzzy gray area of why can't we just move all of our tracking server side and there's the majority answer or the majority of channels answer is, well, we don't have that capability to accept data in that manner yet. I think it'll be soon, but we're not there yet. All right, let's uh, transition over. Do you want to go to GA4 next? Sure. Yeah, let's talk about GA4. We got a couple things to discuss. Let's jump into okay. the uh, just quickly. I know you might have brushed on this before, but let's talk about so GA4 can connect in a couple different ways. One way, the way we really like is using Elevar, but there's also a Shopify integration, just like there used to be a Shopify, well, there still is a Shopify integration for universal analytics, but there's kind of like that way of connecting to, you can just use the standard application in Shopify and you'll get some The events. Google channel. Yeah, the Google channel. You'll get some events. We've been kind of digging into it and trying to see, you know, like what's the difference between our system and their system. And I just wanted to talk about a couple things that I've found. So out of the box, it looks like that, integration from Shopify sends about seven different events. I'm not going to go through every single event, but yeah. it sends about seven different events. Good events like page views and add to carts and view products. Our integration out of the box sends about um, 16. And yeah. the other thing to note is that our purchase event for GA4 is server side. And also our checkout events can be server side too. But the Shopify integration, the Shopify Google channel, is it just the web tracking? So you're going to be yeah. subject to all the limitations of web tracking with that plugin. I don't have a ton more to say about it besides we're looking at the BigQuery data. That's what I'm really interested in. What does the BigQuery data look like? Does it have all the data that we send? Is it missing stuff? Does it have stuff we don't have? Yeah. And then another interesting piece to just kind of consider is what's being used for the user ID. And I think from the hits that I was looking at, it looks like they just use the standard GA user ID. So issue with that thing to note in WebKit, it can expire in seven days. I'm not going to dive into those details, but it can expire in seven days. And yeah. we've been doing some research on that. And depending on 
you know, the price level of your product and your, your demo and stuff like that, expiry does happen. And sometimes it happens in a big way. So yeah. just another thing to note, we use Shopify's cookie. It's more durable. Typically it lasts a year, to, no matter which browser it's in. So that's something that, you know, you wouldn't necessarily be able to customize. At least I, I don't know how you would, but with our integration, you can. And where this might come into play, if if we just go online or answer the so what question, like, so what, why does that matter? If you're doing any data analysis or if you're pulling data into your own warehouse or Audacity or others like that, the if you can maintain that user across multiple sessions, across multiple days, your business intelligence, you can start to stitch those sessions together versus if you have a user that comes to the site five times over 15 days, if you are using a user ID where it's that same user ID that doesn't expire, then those five sessions can be connected for that user. If that user ID is not a one-year hardened user ID, then you likely might have two to three different users even though over that five sessions, even though it's just one user, five sessions. So to me, that's one of the biggest user ID applications when it comes to the answering the so what. Other big thing to me, I, this is really a specific use case, but post-purchase uh, upsells. So if you're using upsells, so rebuys or cart hooks or Zipify, et cetera, if you're using post-purchase upsells, the purchase event will not trigger in the native Google, uh, this native Google channel. It won't fire when that user is presented with the, hey, thanks for your main purchase. Do you want to buy this other thing? That purchase event does not fire. So many people either leave that page, they choose to decline the upsell, then the native Google sales channel, the purchase event only fires if they reach that final, final thank you page. So that's another one to keep your eye out for. Yeah. And, and recurring orders won't go either. But back to your, yeah. kind of back to your magical funnel and that whole like business intelligence piece, you may lose with a better, more durable user ID, you will reconstruct user journeys better because mm -hmm. if you have a ex cookie that's expiring every seven days, you may not be able to see the magical funnel. Yeah. You may miss the fact that a lot of users first click on a TikTok ad and then they click on a Facebook ad and buy. It may look like your users all just click on Facebook ads and you cut TikTok because, you know, it doesn't look like it's showing up in the funnel, but it actually is a part of the funnel. So, yeah, yeah, the magical path. All right, I'm going to weave in a little bit of some LOVAR news, but we'll this will get into some cookie expiration since you just brought that up. Depending on when you're listening to this, we might already have our LOVAR Clavio server-side destination live in beta testing. It's a pending, this is John's world, this is John's baby, but just to tee it up for you, John. So this server-side destination from LOVAR's perspective is view collection, product view, add to cart. We'll send that to Clavio when we are able to match that activity to a user that we have available within the, the context of the Elevar umbrella and what we are doing data storage wise to connect and uh, extend user sessions over seven days, 30 days, a year, et cetera. To tee up the cookie expiration combo, before going through and, and building some enhanced functionality that you'll be hearing from about or hearing from us soon, we wanted to quantify this problem of, okay, we had this hypothesis that if someone that signs up for a, an attentive email on their landing page, they click a Facebook ad, they go to your site, they see the attentive or postscript or whatever to pop up, they enter their email, and then they go navigate, is that experience maintained if your abandoned cart flows are powered by Clavio, even though your pop-up is powered by a non-Clavio app. So how can you ensure that emails are being sent 
if someone adds to cart or they come back to the site after the Klaviyo cookie ID is expired, or maybe that connection never happened. Uh, so we want to do quantify what is that percentage. So what percentage of people, and John, you can explain this much better than I can, but what percentage of people uh, would would that email have been sent out to if that cookie did not expire or, or if we could recognize that returning user? So can you talk a little bit about the data? That you, we quantified this. So we want to answer the question with real data before we built anything crazy and, and rolled it out so we could actually prove a, a true ROI. What's some of the data, interesting data that you found? Yeah, this is a hard one to explain because even when you first came to me with this problem, I was like, oh my God, this guy's nuts. This can't be worthwhile digging into, you know? And the main thrust of this is when you have a user submit an email on a website and Clavio's involved, you want to make sure that after that email is submitted, Clavio is aware of every single thing, like every important event that that user completes in their user journey. That's, that's kind of what we're driving for here. But what actually happens quite often, and maybe we'll get into the percents later, but on some sites, the connection to Clavio basically dies. So the user comes, submits their email, they look at a product. That look, that view product event goes to Clavio, but then they maybe they don't come back for a few days. Maybe they don't come back for like ten days, and then and then they do come back, and then they continue to look at products and they add something to their cart, and maybe they begin a checkout. All those events that happened after that ten day gap are no longer connected to the Clavio session. And Brad, you're really I mean you're the expert on like why this is so important in Clavio, but from my understanding, merchants. Love Clavio. They build a lot of flows based on behavior on the site. And when you're losing, in some cases, I guess like the big banner headline for us is we found a site with quite expensive products that's losing about 30% of their sessions to Clavio because of cookie expiry. So if you start doing the numbers and Brad, maybe you want to jump back in here because you were pretty good at like kind of figuring out what that all means, but it has a really big impact. Yeah. So the Let's say without this extension of being able to recognize this returning user after the 10 days, say normally this brand would send out 100 abandoned car emails so that they would send 100 abandoned car emails and their flows would would function as normal and people would convert at 20% or whatever the number may be. But if we're able to extend and recognize and where this 30% came from is, okay, well, actually they should be sending uh, 130 or 140, whatever the number is, the number of emails that should and could be sent out by recognizing users past that seven day or 10 day period, they should be sending out 150 emails. So you just do the math. So if you're sending out 50 more emails times a 20% conversion rate times your average order value, that's essentially your revenue. That's your ROI of, okay, this is actually a problem worthwhile solve that we want to solve. And uh, by the way, 150 and 100 might not be the right 30% number, but don't hold me to public math. <laughs> that's essentially what we're, we're seeing. And um, you were slicing and dicing by looking at high, I would say time intent to buy is a few days, low price items. And that was what, around 10%? They're missing 10% or ish. so? Yeah, ish. Some are even lower than that. Like some are more like three, four or 5%. But it seems like the bigger the store, so the more data we have, obviously, the better these numbers are. The bigger stores with more data are the ones that are showing like nine, 10% expiry. And you have to remember our tests have only been running for maybe two months and 
this could change over a whole year, right? You could have people come back in the same browser. So it's a little bit hard to predict where it'll land, but it's going up all the time. Yeah. So I was surprised. Like I honestly, when I first started doing these tests, I didn't think we'd see the numbers we're seeing, but you seem to be pretty sure there was something funky going on. The other interesting thing, and just like back to basic stuff is a lot of sites that I've seen since you brought this up don't actually, they'll be using, let's say they use Postscript to collect emails and then the email's collected, but it's not actually put into the Klaviyo system. So Klaviyo isn't even aware of what's going on on the site in terms of events. And that's just kind of like a back to basics thing that will get looked at if you do a setup with us. But kind of interesting to see that it's not just always taken care of by these vendors. Yeah, and there is a blog post. We have an article that you helped write that's on our blog that goes through that exact scenario. You don't need LOR to fix that. You can just go through and you'll see if it's connected or not. And if it's not connected, it, you just get it connected and it'll be likely instant money. You'll make money from those connections working. More coming from us on that, but I thought it was relevant. Just we were talking about expirations with GA4 user IDs and we knew we had this this data to share with the Clavio experiment that we've been running the last couple of months. Let's go back to GA4 uh, just to go through some reporting nuances. Big surprise, we are in the thick of just getting hundreds of questions per week from our customers on everything GA4 related as time is ticking. We're less than 100 days away from waking up. The alarm goes off, we wake up, and now we have to start using GA4 to uh, analyze our performance from the previous day. Assuming the data actually is visible, it's, it's caught up. No laughter for my jokes since it's just a one-on-one podcast with you and I. But anyways, maybe it was just a bad joke, a bad setup and bad delivery from me. But okay, so any, hundreds of questions. They're, they range all over the place, but I think one of the most common questions that I see coming through is around why doesn't my GA4 data transactions channel source medium, why doesn't that match what I'm seeing in universal analytics? So can you just talk through a few reports and maybe some of the reasons why if you just open up GA4 and look at their default reports, why that's just not meant to look like what you'd see in universal analytics? Yeah, sure. So I'm going to tread carefully here because it, the source medium stuff in GA4 is crazy. Like it's it's confusing. We need to pull Katie. We got to phone Katie in. Exactly. I was just going to mention, so Katie, our head of data, has been working really hard on basically ways to sort of QA between GA4 and UA. Because if you go into GA4 and you just look at like a source medium report, oftentimes it, it looks quite different than what you see in universal analytics. Never mind the fact that you weren't even able to make channel reports. And that's where most people were looking. So what we've done, what Katie's done, is helped us build some custom reports in GA4 that look at source mediums on the event level. So just to go over this, you can have source mediums on the event level. So that's like per hit. And then you can have a traffic source medium, which I believe is from the very beginning. Is that like a user source medium, essentially? And there's also a session source medium, I believe. So all of these different source mediums attached to these different like ideas or yeah, hits in, in GA4. So basically you need to dig through and figure out what kind of matches what you're seeing in UA. Just for comfort, I think. Like I'd want to do it too if I was doing it. I want to make sure that it looks roughly the same. So now when somebody onboards with us with GA4, we're basically building them a set of reports that help them make comparisons back and forth between the two and make sure things look 
good in a relative sense to how they used to be. Whereas prior to having these reports, it was kind of like, well, GA4 is quite different and you're just going to kind of have to get used to what it looks like. So now we have a little bit of a QA we can do. And I think it's giving people some comfort who are used to staring at GA well for the last however long, right? I have a question for you, maybe a little bit out of context, but do you think, I remember we talked about this a little while ago, maybe like six or eight months ago, but GA4 has changed quite a bit since then. Do you think, and I'm probably going to keep on asking this question, but and I'm sure you know where I'm going. Do you think it's like ready for prime time? Do you think people who are heavy users of GA? No, <laughs> no. Why? You can't, something as simple as you want to see conversion rate based on your events. You can't, you can't see conversion rate. What's my average conversion rate for people who click for the add to cart event or people that click on main navigation? You can't get events scoped conversion rate so is it really like from a cro perspective that it's lacking or is it is it from a like an analyst perspective too do you think i think if we look at just our customer base as a whole just the usability of i don't have an hour to spend to go find the reports that i need i just need to go and look at my channel performance maybe i want to look at facebook prospecting campaign by landing page see performance by that. And then maybe I'll pop over to Google ads and see how Google ads, same thing, landing page. And then I want to look at my shopping funnel and see what's going on, where are people dropping off? And if I have time, yeah, dig into some of my events to see, and we rolled out this new feature on, I don't know, a new carousel on the homepage. And we want to see how that's performing. Those very common and simple acts that is very normal to our customers, not daily, multiple times per day. To me right now, just it's not feasible. Will it be? Probably at some point. But as of March 31st, when we are recording this, it's not, in my opinion. Yeah, interesting. That reminds me, another thing that Katie's done is made a report that's strictly event-based. So it's only for custom behavioral events. And that was a pain to see yeah. before. That that was not easy. So now there's a nice report. I, like you said, I don't think conversion rates in there, unfortunately. But but it's not. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But it's there. It's a little better. My issue with that is it was my very opinionated view on Hotjar back in the day. Not Hotjar specifically, but heat mapping or click mapping tools. You would look at a screen and you'd see really bright orange or whatever the per- blue, purple, whatever it is the, in terms of highest number of hit count. And you'd say, great, like, that's awesome. That's where we want everyone to go. But the conversion rate for that action was 10% of someone who's clicking this other thing that is, isn't quite purple or blue. Then you're just, you are making a fundamental mistake in your decision-making by just looking at activity. Because activity doesn't mean in, in e-com world conversions. Even though we can still send behavior events, and it was a blog article in our GA4 Slack channel that I think it was last week's lesson we shared. So we still are sending, creating those events and creating that report. But it, man, it's just when you're looking at it, let's just look at number of sessions that were that event triggered and you're trying to determine how can I make any decisions from this without any revenue or conversion data, is, it's flawed. Again, very, very opinionated view here that it's a flawed uh, analysis. Not a super positive note on GA4 then. Not right now. Yeah, we'll just move on. It's, it's, the, it's the reporting. And I'm looking from the lens of our customers too. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm trying to empathize with the lack of time they have available. Yeah. One other thing I wanted to bring up is we, 
basically completely overhauled. And I like saying we because it was such an awesome effort, but it really had nothing to do with me. Thomas, Joe, Noah, our dev team completely overhauled the headless process of onboarding with us. And if anybody listening has onboarded in the past or anybody is interested in like building a headless site, our process for onboarding headless sites has gotten 10x better. And, and I'm not exaggerating. It's It's been somewhat painful in the past because a headless site is essentially an app. You're basically building an app. And when you build that app, you have to send us a bunch of data then you have to pick up UTMs and click IDs and you have to send us. It was a bit of a mess and I don't think it was anybody's fault. We tried to make it easy, but it was difficult. Now we're essentially doing almost all of that for you, except you have to push us the events. That's really all you're left to do. And there used to be this big, long back and forth to QA the shape of the event. So just to make this concrete, let's say you have to push us an add to cart event. We would look at the add to cart event that you're pushing into the data layer and tell you, oh, well, the shape of this event isn't quite right. Can you put this here and this here? And then we go back and forth a couple of times. And eventually we'd finally come up with something that we thought was good. Now um, we have a tool right in the console. So for developers, they can go right into the console. They can push the event to the data layer. The console will tell them immediately, is the shape of the event correct? If it is, it'll give it a pass. And you can just kind of work your way through the events one by one. As soon as you have them all passed, you can onboard with us really easily. At that point, it's basically like your standard onboarding with like a typical Shopify store. So you still have some responsibility, but the process is is very different and I think a lot more fun. And we have some new docs and stuff and I'm still seeing, I don't know how you feel, but it seems like Headless is as popular as ever. Yep. Still seeing many brands moving Headless, but I'm still seeing some come back too. Still seeing some that are coming back to a Shopify theme. So I'm sure it'll be that similar process as time goes on. Yeah. So if you've experienced in the past and found it to be a bit of a headache, it's much better. It's much, much better. And now it's using fully managed. Our servers are like no must, no fuss, totally hands off. You don't have to allocate instances in the Google Cloud platform to make sure that your server isn't going to break on you. It's headache free kind of a thing. So I'm pretty excited about it. Pretty cool to see a big change like that. Awesome. Well, we're uh, 40 minutes, John. This was great. And hopefully this was helpful to you. Any last notes, shares before we wrap it up? No, that's it. That's everything I got. All right. Well, John's the man behind some of these new destinations. So if you are interested in the Klaviyo server side or the destination that rhymes with frugal lads, then uh, yeah, John's the guy. (laughs) Yeah. Message me. Yeah, I'll leave that one uh, as is. So if you're a customer, you, you got an email from us where you can submit your name just to get on the wait list and we'll, uh, we'll get you set up. All right, that's it. Thanks, John. Thanks again for having me. See you, Brad. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate <laughs> it. Bye. Did you enjoy today's episode? If so, we release two new episodes per week. So be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else that you subscribe and listen to your podcasts. I also have a favor to ask. I'd really appreciate if you could leave a comment or review so I can learn exactly how to improve future episodes for you. And last but not least, if you want to connect with me, find me on LinkedIn by searching Brad Redding at Elevar. That's E-L-E-V-A-R. Or you can DM me on Twitter. My handle is I am Brad Redding. I look forward to connecting with you. Thanks again. Thanks again.